But glad everybody's here today. I'm going to start out a little bit different this morning. So when I was a kid, I used to watch the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston in it. Does anybody ever remember that movie? It's an old movie. Oh, man, quite a few people. That was like an epic movie, though. And one of the main reasons we watched that movie is because it was one of the only channels that my rabbit ear TV antenna could pick up. More people, that's one of my deeper jokes for the day. And this movie was epic. It's like four hours long. It's epic. That's twice as epic as the new Aquaman movie, by the way. But did you know this? The Ten Commandments is actually based on a true story, unlike the story of Aquaman. Everything in Aquaman is digitally enhanced. It's just crazy stuff. Nothing this morning on the stage is digitally enhanced. So... But really, the story of the Ten Commandments is actually a true story. It's in the Bible. And over this year of the Bible that we've been reading together, many of you have been reading Exodus over the past few weeks. So good job on that. And in Exodus, we see the story of the Israelites. These are God's chosen people, and God has called Moses to lead God's chosen people out of Egypt and into the promised land. So God gives Moses these instructions. He says, you are supposed to go to Pharaoh and you are supposed to sing this song. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, oh, let my people go. But Pharaoh mainly won't let them go because of that. No, not really because his heart is hardened is what the Bible says. And then God, so God brings these plagues on Egypt. And each plague is basically designed to crush a lower G God that the Egyptians were worshiping at the time. So in the first plague, God takes out the Nile River and he turns the Nile River to blood. And still even today, when I think through this, and I remember watching this as a kid, if I had been Pharaoh, because I really don't like blood, that would have been enough. I mean, okay, God, I'm sorry, God. We for, just forgive us, please, God. Let the Israelites go. And if I had been Pharaoh, I said, please, God, just forgive us. Don't make the river bloody anymore. Because everything had blood in it. It was just crazy. And then if I had been Pharaoh, I would have sent somebody out to the river to get all my inflatables out of the river and clean that stuff up. Because nobody wants that. But the Bible, that's just my head. But the Bible says that Pharaoh's heart was still too hardened. And he refuses to let God's people go. So God brings plague after plague upon Egypt. And then in the final plague, God brings the angel of death. And all of Egypt's firstborn males are killed, including Pharaoh's own son. So this finally makes Pharaoh let the Israelites go. And the Israelites are free for the first time in over 400 years. And so the Israelites, they start making their way to the promised land led by Moses. And when I was thinking through this, at first, back earlier in my life, I would think through this, and I think, this is like probably 50 Boy Scout-type Israelites wandering around in the desert and stuff like that. But the Bible says that there were over 600,000 men, not counting women and children. So basically, Moses was leading over a million people. This is like half the state of Arkansas going to Texas for some reason. Huh? <laughs> Barbecue or something. But <laughs> and as the people leave... Are wandering through the desert, the Bible says that God parts the Red Sea and that the Israelites walked across the seafloor on dry ground. And then Pharaoh, silly Pharaoh, he tries to recapture the Israelites and God closes the sea on the Egyptian army and this opens the door for the Israelites to have a new life, a new life that God intended for them to have. Later in the story of Exodus, we see the Israelites, they get manna from heaven. 
And the Bible says that the manna was like little honey wafers of sweetened bread. So in my mind, there's just like these little mini, we're going back to my mind again. So in my mind, there's like these little mini golden ego waffles just laying all over the ground. Has anybody seen those? And the little Israelite kids are just running around, and a couple of boys, they get to the same one. You know what they say, right? You better let go of my ego, man. <laughs> but seriously, God not only fed them every day, he led them every day in the form of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So in the desert, it gets hot in the day, and God becomes a cloud, apparently a cloud big enough to shade over a million people. And then, and then at night, the desert gets super cold. God becomes a pillar of fire for them to guide them, to protect them. God is just simply providing everything they need. And you would think through all this that the Israelites, that they would just be in awe of how great God is and that their faith would just be, man, unstoppable faith like this. What all we've seen, unstoppable. But no, it says, the Bible says they moaned, that they whined, and that they complained, and they longed for the good old days back in Egypt where they had meat and figs. Apparently these were some amazing figs. But, but finally, the Israelites make it to Mount Sinai. And so several interesting things are going to happen at the foot of Mount Sinai. Because up until now, God has really asked very little of the Israelite people. He's pretty much provided everything they need. He's done everything for them that they need. But at the foot of Mount Sinai, God is going to ask quite a bit of the Israelite people. So first, God is going to renew his covenant that we talked about earlier in weeks ago with Abraham. He's going to renew his covenant that he made with Abraham, with the Israelites. Next, God's presence is going to descend on Mount Sinai in the form of clouds and thunder and lightning. And God is then going to give the Israelites the Ten Commandments. And God is going to expand on these Ten Commandments in Leviticus with over 600 laws. So you got that to look forward to in your reading. And all of these laws, they were basically designed to, to kind of help the Israelites and God start to relate to each other. And all these laws, they were also designed to make Israel look very different than the other nations around them. These 600 laws and the commandments, they would make the people look different than the other people around them. They would impact how the Israelites would act, interact with each other, how they would live, and how they would worship God. And so here's the synopsis of the Ten Commandments, because we don't have time to read all 600 laws this morning. So congratulations on that. But this is just a synopsis. You can find this in Exodus 20 for some easy reading this afternoon, right before you come back for baptism. And God spoke all these words. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So first God reminds them who he is. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Whew, getting hot in here. It says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his ox, ox, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So the Bible tells us that Moses goes up to the mountain. Mount Sinai, and he gets the Ten Commandments from God. He gets several laws for the people to live by, and he gets detailed instructions on how he is supposed to build the tabernacle for God. So here's the cool thing in all of this, is that God wants to be present with his people again. 
That's what he wants through the laws and the commandments. He's trying to make his presence accessible to the people. Again, God wanted them to build a tabernacle so that his presence could come down and be among his people again. And this is such a beautiful picture of humility because this is the God of the universe. The God of the universe. And he is longing to dwell with his people. And he's trying everything he pretty much can to make this happen because he wanted to be present with his people again. Do you remember in the first week of year of the Bible where God created this perfect garden and where God was present with Adam and Eve and where God had relationship with Adam and Eve and God had unity with Adam and Eve? But Eve, she just had to eat that apple. And that was the last time a woman ever knew what she wanted to eat. Then God... Then God was left with no choice because of Adam and Eve's sin. They both sinned. No emails to Tommy needed. Adam and Eve both sinned, and God removed them from the garden. And I don't want you to miss this. Their access to God's presence was lost. Their access to God's presence was lost. And at Mount Sinai, we see God's plan to make his presence accessible again to his people. God, through this covenant that God is initiating with Moses and the Israelites, he's trying to make his presence accessible to the people again. But unfortunately, for the Israelites, their highest motivation, their highest focus wasn't making things right with God and following these laws and commandments so so that they could dwell and abide in the presence of a living God. No, they just wanted to know what they had to do to make God and to keep God happy. For the Israelites, all these rules and laws and commands did was make them ask this question over and over again all day, every day. What must I do or believe to make things and keep things right between God and me? So what must I do or believe to make things and keep things right between God and me? And then we've been reading about this same scenario in Matthew. And we see the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they're living under this old Mosaic law, under the model of the Ten Commandments. And they were still asking themselves every day this question, what must I do or believe to make things and keep things right between God and me? Because the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they had developed a system where they knew all the rules, they knew all the Mosaic laws, and they had developed this elaborate system for everything that they knew that they needed to do to make God and to keep God happy, or so they thought. And because the Sadducees and the Pharisees are still arguing about all this, they're arguing about the commandments, and they're still trying to figure out if they're doing everything they need to do to make God and to keep God happy, This is where Jesus comes in and he says this in Matthew 22, 35 through 40. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. They said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law And all the prophets, they hang on these two commandments. So in this verse, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and Jesus is telling them it's time to go beyond the Mosaic law. That's what he's telling them. And in in this verse, Jesus, this is blowing the Sadducees and the Pharisees' minds because this was like a huge shift because they had lived under under the model of the the Ten Commandments, and they were making this shift to a new commandment, a covenant based on love through relationships. So let me explain it to you like this. 
Do you know why you should tell the truth and not lie? And most of us in here would say, well, it's the ninth commandment, and the ninth commandment says that thou shalt not lie, and it's in the Bible, and God wrote the Bible, so that means that God says in God's word that we shall not lie. In the old commandment, that's true. In the old Ten Commandment model way of thinking, that is correct. But the Jesus model says, the new commandment of love God and love your neighbor says that you don't lie because when you lie, you hurt the person you lie to. The Jesus model says that when you lie, you are protecting yourself at someone else's expense. The Jesus model says that when you lie, you are saying to the person that you are lying to that you're not even worthy of the truth. When you lie... Whether you realize it or not, you're telling that person that whatever is best for you is secondary to what is best for me. The reason that Christians shouldn't lie isn't even based on a monument that we hold sacred that has the Ten Commandments on it. That's not the reason we shouldn't lie. The reason we shouldn't lie is because we love God and we love our neighbor. So under the old system, people would tell the truth so that God would love them. Under the new system, we tell the truth because we love God and we love our neighbor. So here's another one. Do you know why you shall not covet your neighbor's anything? And most of us, we know this because it's the 10th commandment. And the 10th commandment says that you shall not covet your neighbor's anything. Your neighbor's spouse or their house or their donkey or their Facebook account. Or their, oh, poor, oh. No, and I also know this because it's in the Bible and God wrote the Bible. And God says in God's word, thou shalt not covet my neighbor's anything. Boom, shakalaka. As my four-year-old son says when he gets something right. That is correct, and that is true in the old Ten Commandment model way of thinking. But in the new Jesus model, in the Jesus model of love God and love your neighbor, the primary reason is we don't covet our neighbors anything, is that when you covet your neighbors anything, you diminish your relationship with your neighbor. And on some level, on some level whether you know it or not, you're hurting your relationship with your neighbor. And Jesus' followers, we do not diminish relationships, and we do not hurt other people. And Jesus' followers, they don't hide their coveting by whitewashing it. It's fixing to get good here. And that means that you talk nice to your neighbor, to their face, you talk good to your friend, to their face. But then when they leave, you kind of gossip, and you kind of talk bad about them. And, you, and, and when you covet and gossip about your neighbor, you undermine their integrity in the eyes of other people. Whenever you gossip about anyone, you undermine their integrity in the eyes of other people. When you gossip, you elevate yourself at somebody else's expense. That's why you shouldn't covet your neighbor's things, and that's why you shouldn't gossip about your neighbor. You cannot love your neighbor and covet their things. You cannot love your neighbor and whitewash your coveting through gossiping about them. And in the Jesus model, we demonstrate our love for God by loving our neighbor. And that's why Jesus said this. He said that all the laws and all the prophets hang on these two commandments of love God and love your neighbor. Because everything in the Old Testament and everything in the New Testament, they are just these radical examples of how we are supposed to love God by loving our neighbor. And the laws of the Old Testament were about making God's people look different than the people of the, world, of the world. And all the laws in the New Testament and the teaching of Jesus, they were about making God's people look different than the world, about making God's people love different than the world. So when the world nudges us to lie, Jesus' followers, we try our best to speak truth. When the world urges us to gossip, Jesus' followers, we hold our tongue. 
Or better yet, we try our best to speak words of encouragement. When the world nudges us and tells us that we need a bigger house or a newer car or a younger spouse, Jesus followers, they stop and they say, thank you, God, for what I have. I really need you to hear this part. The Jesus model is far less complicated than the rule-keeping and law-keeping model of the commandments. The Jesus model is far less complicated than the rule-keeping and the law-keeping model of the commandments. But the Jesus model is also far more demanding. Because at the center of this Jesus model is Jesus. At the center of this love commandment is Jesus. And in this Jesus model, Jesus was mocked. And in this Jesus model, Jesus was beaten. And in this Jesus model, Jesus was spit on. That's what makes this love commandment look so radically different. That's how far this love commandment goes. This is what Jesus, this this love commandment requires of all of us. That's what Jesus was willing to do to give you access to the presence of God again. That's how far he was willing to go. And that's why this Jesus model is far less complicated, but it, also, but it is also way more demanding. This is also why the Christian faith, when lived out in this way, is so amazing and so attractive and so active and so winsome and so beautiful. Because when you make up your mind that no matter what that person at the office or at the deer camp or at the baseball field or wherever, no matter what they say about you, you're not going to talk bad about them. You're not going to gossip about them. You are just going to find some way to love them. And sometimes you love them by saying nothing at all. Because when you make up your mind, I'm just going to love these people that are different than me. That's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to love them. I'm going to find a way to love them. Because when you make up your mind that you're just going to try your best to keep the commandment of love God and love your neighbor, everything else in your life changes. I mean, how different would God's people look if we actually lived this love commandment out? How different would would Grace Church look if we actually lived this love commandment out? How different... Would your marriage look if you actually lived this love commandment out? How different would every other relationship in your life look if you actually lived this love commandment? If just these people here, nobody else, if we all just decided this morning that we're going to live out this love commandment, we're just going to try our best. And that's why this year of the Bible thing is so amazing. Because this is this amazing opportunity for us together to study God's word together. It's this opportunity for us to grow together as a body of Christ, as a church of Christ. Because the Bible is our instruction manual on how to look different than the world. The Bible is our instruction manual on how to love different than the world. But if you don't read it, you'll never learn it. And it's not just a bunch of rules and laws and stuff that we have to have to live to make God happy. No, it's the absolute freedom to live the life you were designed and created to live. This is no more striving to keep rules and laws to keep God happy. This is no more comparison. This is no more gossiping. This is no more trying to get ahead of the person next to you. It's none of that. This love commandment is just living for an audience of one. This love commandment is just living for an audience of one. Because this is what life looks like beyond the law. And this is the life that Jesus came to give us all. 